What's in the basket? Easter eggs? <clears throat> Just visiting New York, or...? Yeah, this is my first time. So, have you gone to the Empire State Building yet in the Statue of Liberty? No, I haven't had the time. Haven't had the time? Well, what about Radio City Music Hall? Or the UN? Had time for them? No, I... I well, what about the World Trade Towers? Or, or the trolley cars? It's not that I don't want to, but... The Met, the Cloisters, Grimace Chinese. It's just that I don't know where anything is. Well, if you need a tour guide, I'd be happy to volunteer. Apparently, the best way to pick up a stranger carrying a mysterious wicker basket is to get super passive-aggressive about their lack of sightseeing in New York. And that's just the half of it. That's a joke that you'll get by the end of the episode. We're still up all night, and this episode we watched Basket Case. Hello, everybody, and welcome to USA Up All Night with me, Rhonda. Hi, I'm Gilbert Gottfried, the comedian in the cupboard for USA Up All Night. In this movie, you'll see two of your favorite stars. Now, if you drink enough beer, you'll start seeing more of your favorite stars. Stay with me on USA Up All Night. Welcome to a Halloween episode of Still Up All Night, the podcast that celebrates the crazy and sometimes spooky films of USA Up All Night. I'm Travis Yates, joined as always by my horror-loving co-host Rob Katie, and it is the season, Rob. It's finally here. It's Halloween time. You've got to be a happy co-host right now. Absolutely. Huge fan of spooky season. So, Rob, every year you do a 31 Days of Horror movie review on your social media. You can find that on Twitter slash X um, at RobKady1. That's R-O-B-C-A-D-Y and the number one. How is your horror movie festival and reviews going this year, Rob? I it's picked up and improved. I, I was feeling um, some fatigue with a, a series of movies that I considered to be just fine, which I, I think can actually be worse than a, a bad movie. You know, it, it's hard to talk about something that is competently made, but really doesn't do much for you. Much easier to rag on something that's bad or, you know, really enjoy something. Uh, but yeah, like uh, last night, I watched Totally Killer on Amazon Prime and had a, a ton of fun with it. And I think tonight uh, I'm probably going to watch The Boogeyman on Hulu. So that'll be my next one. So the nice things about your reviews is that you can pretty much find these anywhere. I mean, very rarely do you find a movie that's hard to find um, on a, you know, you do have Shudder. So, right, you do some pick some movies from there. But for the most part, these are pretty easy to find. Yeah, I do. You know, I try and spread it across the services that I do have. So, like, I have Max, Hulu. Shutter, Tubi, Prime, and Netflix. So I try and sprinkle, you know, a few movies from each service so that anyone tuning in, you know, has options. Don't you mean splatter across the? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so yeah, it is fun if you uh, if you're if you like watching scary movies during the Halloween Holly. <laughs> I'll get there. Halloween season. There it is. <laughs> Hollywood and Halloween. So very close. Um, follow Rob on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it. I don't care. Um, and look, if you don't like Rob all that much and just want to follow him, you know, for the one month, just follow him in October and then unfollow him and then come back the next year. So it is the season, the spooky season. So we went with the horror genre this episode and the 1982 movie Basket Case. The film with the tagline, The Tenant in Room 7, is very small, very twisted, and very mad. Rob, <laughs> this movie is bonkers. Um, and your choice. Um, but hey, before we visit The Tenant in Room 7, let's go back to 1982, as we always do here with our Pop Culture Rewind. So Basket Case was released on April 2nd, 1982, a simpler time for sure and a great time for pop culture. Rob, the top movies at the box office kind of surprised me. Number one that week was Porky's. Oh, 
that's a classic right there. Of course. So interestingly, Porky's was released in November of 1981, but it was still going strong at the box office five months later. Um, it was the fifth highest grossing film of 1982, pulling in more than $100 million. Does that surprise you? That just to, to achieve $100 million surprises me back in 82. Yeah, and I, I knew, I mean, Porky's is a cult classic, of course, but I didn't realize it was such a big movie at the box office. I thought yeah. maybe through rentals yeah. and stuff that it find and, you know, television. So that was interesting. Um, okay, so this number two also surprised me. It was the Richard Pryor comedy slash drama Some Kind of Hero. Um, rounds out the top five here with On Golden Pond, the Chuck Norris action film Silent Rage, and finally, <laughs> the sports biopic Chariots of Fire. So a really oh, yeah. interesting mix here. Obviously, Porky's On Golden Pond, Chariots of Fire are all iconic movies for different reasons, but seeing some kind of hero and silent rage in the top five box office kind of threw me for a loop. Rob, are you familiar with either of these? Uh, silent rage, definitely. Um, you know, and I, th- I think that just sort of speaks to the, the action time of the eighties that, you know, there weren't, I guess, copious amounts of those sorts of films being made, but they all did well because everybody loves an action movie, but I'm, I'm not familiar with the Richard Pryor film. Not that, you know, it jumped, nothing jumps to mind when you say that title. Yeah, uh, admittedly, I had to do a bit of looking myself for some kind of hero, which is laden with social commentary about Vietnam vets reintegrating into society after the war. But, you know, this was right before The Toy. And that's more along the lines of Richard Pryor movies that I remember as a kid. Yeah, same here. And I'm sure that I saw Silent Rage as a kid because growing up in the mean streets of the Chicago suburb Woodridge, uh, shout out to the Westwood Springs Apartments crew, um, we rented just about every action flick under the sun, um, though I wouldn't put Silent Rage as one of Chuck Norris's most well-known 80s action movies. It's not, but it's sort of unique for him in that, you know, it revolves him you know, obviously, as a, you know, as he tended to be either a military person or a police officer. I, I think he's an officer in this one, and he's trying to stop a serial killer. And there are, you know, a fair bit of horror elements sprinkled throughout that film that is just not characteristic of really anything else he ever did. As we always do, it seems like when we look at the the top five box office in our pop culture rewind, we we find a nugget or two. We'll have to check out Silent Rage and see if it's on the the up all night slate and if so mm. we might have to add it to the to the list down the line uh, yeah, it doesn't jump out as as from memory going through the list seeing it on there yeah. but uh yeah it's wor- always worth double checking and it's on tubi so there you go our musical chart to- chart toppers in the first week of april 1982 it's an iconic song rob that can be heard just about every day on any classic hits radio station i love rock and roll by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, you know, the one with the uncomfortable lyric where the then 24-year-old Joan Jett sings about taking home a teenage boy. <laughs> but hey, it was the Good early times. 80s. Yeah, it was a different time, right? Rounding- well, it's also different, uh, you know, even today, the, the perspectives on that where you, you know, if uh, the rules were reversed, you know, condemnation, but in those situations, it's, it's high fives, you know. Right, yeah. <laughs> Rounding out our top five, Journey's Open Arms, We Got the Beat by the Go-Go's, Stevie Wonder's That Girl, and Olivia Newton-John's Make a Move on Me. Thoughts on the top five musical chart here, uh, Rob, also kind of a, a really blended mix. Yeah, I mean, no no complaints here, all, all fun songs. And then finally, the Nielsen ratings for the week of April 2nd, 1982. It was actually movies that get the top billing here with the Academy Awards show as the most viewed program, followed by Dallas, 60 Minutes, and a pair of sitcoms, Three's Company, a big RIP to Suzanne Somers, who we just recently lost. And I'll let let Ben Stiller uh, round out our top five here. Joni loves Chachi! (laughs) So, uh, yeah, Joni... Joni loves Chachi, the uh, the spinoff of Happy Days, breaking up the top five. <laughs> Any memories of Joni loves Chachi? You know, we I'm pretty positive we watched it, but I don't think I really got into that one. You know, I think I sort of very quickly 
found other things to do during that time slot. Yeah, I vaguely remember them, you know, getting an apartment on their own and you know, mm-hmm. the woes of dealing with finances and things of that nature. So funny stuff. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is the first time, Rob, since doing the Pop Culture Rewind that the Cosby show wasn't on the list. And it's only because it wasn't a show yet in 1982, right? Yeah, so. too early. Yeah. Elsewhere in pop culture in April of 82. Um, boy, how about this for a mega lineup on April 17th? Johnny Cash hosts Saturday Night Live with musical guest Elton John. Whoa. Yeah. So we got to hunt show that, that thing down. Was, yeah. On April 19th, Sally Ride was named the first female American astronaut known forever in Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, Wheel of Fortune, Sally Ride, Heavy Metal Suicide. You know the rest. Yeah. Yeah, my sister, or sorry, my daughter is a huge fan of hers. Uh, She's a a space nut and um, had to do a report and chose Sally as her, uh, you know, the person to write a report on. Nice. And finally, on April 26th, Rod Stewart was mugged at gunpoint when shopping on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. And according to Stewart, a gunman stole his Porsche 911, but not before first asking him how to start the car. Because um, it's like a button start. Um, the incident yeah. led to Stewart moving back to the UK for a short time before eventually returning to LA. And Rob, this one hurts, as you know. I own a classic Porsche 944, so yes, I sir. I really feel for Stewart, and I wonder where that 911 ultimately ended up. No kidding. I, yeah, I wonder if he ever recovered it or it was gone for good. Yeah. Um, so that's it for April of 82 in a nutshell. But uh, listen, Rob, before we get to this episode's film, there's a new soft drink that's sweeping the country and we're proud to have Coca-Cola and their new 1982 cola as this episode's sponsor. We'll be right back on USA Up All Night, still up all night. What's new in New York? Diet Coke. And you're going to drink it just for the taste of it. Introducing Diet Coke. You're going to drink it just for the taste of it. Living good with Diet Coke. This is the one from Coca-Cola. We're going to taste with just one calorie. Just for the taste of it. Just for the taste of it. Whew, Rob, it's hard to believe that Diet Coke wasn't even around until 1982. Um, that kind of it really surprised me when Coke executives from 1982 contacted the Still Up All Night Studio and asked uh, to be a retro sponsor for this episode. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I want to say at, at the time it was like Tab was your only choice, or at least you know only one I was aware of that you know didn't have you know just eight thousand pounds of sugar in it. Yes. And, and I love you know, just advertising from the early 80s and, and before. I love just the simplicity of, you know, I love the line in here, the one from Coke, you know, just, yeah. just so you know, because obviously everybody at that, that point started coming out with with uh, with diet sodas. But, you know, this is the one from Coke, just to just so you know, just to be sure. I, I miss that sort of everything was just catchy songs mm-hmm. and slogans, the, yeah. uh, just the taste just for the taste of it. Yep. Okay, uh, all fun and games aside, it's time to get down to the serious business, sort of. It's Basket Case. Um, this movie is the brainchild of Frank Henenlotter, and uh, Henenlotter grew up on Grindhouse Days, Grindhouse Films, uh, and through his films, um, they fall mostly in the horror genre, but uh, the filmmaker says that he prefers the term exploitation films for his work, um, which is perfect for USA Up All Night. So it makes sense that Basket Case appeared in the series. Uh, First, Rob, uh, initial memories of Basket Case. I mean, you kind of picked this movie, sort of. You you gave us a a whole little group of choices here, and Basket Case was ultimately the the decision. The winner, yeah. So what were your initial thoughts here when you you picked this? I mean, it's it's Hen and Lauder's directorial debut, and and I've I've seen... I haven't seen actually haven't seen all the basket cases. I I think I in doing this was shocked to find there was a third. I'm not sure I ever knew there was a third. Um but I've seen his other films and I you know I have to go along with his opinion. Yeah, they're they're horror films, but they definitely are you know in the exploitation 
niche as well, especially when you get to, to things like bad biology, which I only saw, I don't know, probably five or six years ago. Um, but this, I think, is his best work. Yeah. It certainly has a more heart, if I can even say that, than the other films. <laughs> yeah, he's not a household name by any stretch, mm-hmm. but... Um... I mean, he wouldn't make another feature film after this until 1988 with the horror film Brain Damage. But uh, as you mentioned, in 1990, he returned to his roots with Basket Case 2 and completed the trilogy the following year with, you guessed it, keep it simple, stupid, Basket Case 3. And I also didn't realize that there was a sequel and a third movie. Yeah, I've seen the sequel, um, you know, (laughs) the, I guess, shocking sequels considering how this movie ends but um yeah i again never knew the third existed or at least you know was surprised to see you know and and i looked at some clips or you know images and nothing looked familiar to me so i yeah i definitely don't think i've seen the third yeah um he's also directed some important documentaries on the genre that he loves so much uh herschel gordon lewis the Godfather of Gore was released in 2010, and if you made it all the way through the credits in this movie, you'll see a dedication to Herschel Gordon Lewis. Um, and then um, in 2013, he made That's Sexploitation, which looks at the cinematic history of sexploitation movies dating back to the 1920s. So in addition to some of his own exploitation films, he's made some documentaries that that, uh, that look back at the history of this type of film. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so Basket Case stars Kevin, I'm going to struggle with this <laughs> name throughout, um, Van Hentenrich, I think is how you'd pronounce that. Um, or Hentenreich. Hentenreich. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I've never heard it. So Yeah, he's an interesting guy, Rob. He's been with Henenlotter pretty much hand in hand since Henenlotter's first short film, Slash of the Knife, in 1972. He appeared in all three Basket Case films, as well as Henenlotter's Brain Damage. And then Mm -hmm. after 1991's Basket Case 3, he would disappear from acting until reappearing in the 2006 horror film The Absence of Light. And he's actually a sculptor by trade, a craft that he discovered while attending the Academy of Dramatic Art at Oakland University in Michigan. It was there when he watched uh, the movie Savage Messiah, a film about a French sculptor, and it really grabbed his attention and he shifted his focus from acting to sculpting. Interesting. Um, but after an introduction to Henenlotter, um, Van Hentenreich, <laughs> would, he'd get the best of both worlds, some acting in the Basket Case films and other low-budget horror films while becoming a professional sculptor. So interesting about our lead actor here. Um, Basket Case was independently shot and produced by Henenlotter with an estimated budget of $35,000. Did you find anything else on the budget that disputes that, Rob, in your research? Nope. I, I, multiple sources had that as <clears throat> as the budget, but I, I found nothing about uh, anything to do with profits. Yeah. Um, in 2017, I, you know, I just I love that there's the effort to recognize films like this beyond our um, mm-hmm. our little podcast here. In 2017, the film was selected for preservation in the permanent film collection by New York's Museum of Modern Art and re-released in 4K the following year. And when that happened, Henenlotter said that he was humbled and uh, he congratulated producer Edgar Levins, uh, actors Kevin Van Hentenreich and Beverly Bonner, who played the kind of romantic lead in this. Um, and in his words everyone else who helped make this crazy little movie a reality way back when is what he said there. So pretty, pretty neat um, thing that happened there and, um, you know, ways to remember this, this tiny little film with such a small budget, but you know, we'll get into some of the really cool things about the film. So uh, basket case first appeared on USA up all night on April 13th, 1990 as the second film of the night. Surprisingly, it would just appear two more times, uh, again in 1991, and for a final time as the third film of the night in January of 1992. So, Rob, let's get our low-budget horror on with our film, Basket Case. Um, Rob, as you know, movies are broken down into five parts, so let's just breakly, uh, let's briefly break down Basket Case in each selection. Sure. Um, 
In the film's exposition, we see the death of a doctor in a scene that I found reminiscent of like Halloween or Friday yeah. the 13th. You've got the white exterior of the home that reminded me of the house from the Halloween franchise. Handheld point of view shots from the view of our yet to be revealed killer. And when the doctor, uh, Dr. Lifflander, I believe, to be precise, um, when he runs back inside, he's mysteriously killed by a disfigured, clawed hand. And we're off and running. Um, yeah, it's it's much, it very much <clears throat> evokes slasher films in that opening sequence as opposed to sort of what it becomes more of a creature feature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of, I guess, homages, you you would say, um, in this film, which makes sense because Hen and Lutter's work is, is kind of, the, I think, his whole career is is an attempt to pay homage to the films that inspired him Mm. Um, next we meet Dwayne bradley who's just casually walking you know through downtown new york carrying a large locked wicker basket Uh, (laughs) it's such a striking and this is new york in the early 80s so it was before it kind of got cleaned up and commercialized right so this is really these scenes are all filmed sort of guerrilla style where you know he just let um Kevin walked down the street and he drove by in a car filming him. <laughs> yeah, I doubt a lot of permits were filmed were were uh yeah, <laughs> were no, done for this I don't film. think you're you know gaining a permit from a basket case. <laughs> yes. Um so he's looking for a hotel room for a couple of days and uh when he finds his hotel room, he uh he feeds whatever's in the basket with like a ton of hamburgers and there's this sort of guttural munching sound and the basket yes. shakes on the bed. <laughs> um it's really great, really funny scene. Um, you get the sense that you know something's in that basket, and probably whatever the gruesome hand from the previous uh, opening scene there um, that gives the title of the film, Basket Case, right? So we know there's something in there, but we don't know yet. Um, so Dwayne is looking for a Dr. Cutter, and he goes to see another doctor, Dr. Needleman, to get Dr. Cutter's information. So we've kind of got this this trio of doctors involved here. That's when the hilarious interaction with Sharon, the receptionist that we heard in the cold open of this episode occurs, where she's like mad that he didn't see anything in New York. Um, But Dwayne doesn't have time for romance. I mean, he's on the hunt for somebody who we don't know yet. Um, This film, I thought Rob did a really nice slow burn, not revealing what's in the basket initially. Mm -hmm. Um, Dwayne takes the basket. He, and almost everywhere he goes, he takes this basket and, um, his laundry basket, he says. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And when he finally uh, meets with the Dr. Needleman, he takes off his shirt, and it's revealed that a, he's got this just a large part Huge of his torso. Scar. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't even call it a, It looked more than a scar. It was like just this whole um, kind of deformation of his whole side. Um, later, when he falls asleep in a movie theater, somebody tries to steal the basket and that the person is mauled in the face by whatever's in the basket. And we great this, get this great point of view shot from inside the basket. Mm-hmm. Um, when, and Dwayne's talking to, to it saying, not yet, save it. So, you know, we kind of get a sense here of, of what's going on with he and this basket, whatever's in the basket, are on a, a hunt for something. Um, we meet Dr. Cutter, who I thought was a great fake Sigourney Weaver <laughs> and a Canadian Sigourney Weaver because she, you couldn't hide her Canadian accent, right? Yes. Um, she said, again, and I'm sorry. Um, played by Diane Brown. Um, when Needleman calls to, to warn her, Dr. Cutter's having just none of it. Um, and <laughs> She's having a romantic uh, yeah. dinner where she's plying a younger man with all kinds of alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you've got Needleman, Lifflander, and now Cutter. They're, they were obviously all in on whatever happened to Dwayne and whatever's in the basket. But, you know, Cutter's having none of it. And so it kind of sets her up as the main villain of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. So finally, Rob, at the 31-minute mark, we finally learn what's in the basket. When Dwayne returns to Dr. Needleman's office after hours and empties the basket we still don't see it but we hear this like breathing sound that sounds like a child to me it it kind of made this whatever that whatever was in there kind of made it sympathetic already did you pick up on that Mm -hmm. what would you think about that kind of first Uh, yeah i i agree it the noises sort of yeah i I don't know how to best describe it but yeah they do evoke at times you know a child when they're not being kind of gross. <laughs> yeah. So the, the creature apparently has superhuman strength also, despite yes, its yeah. size. It like rips a metal door to Needleman's office off its hinges. 
and it kills Needleman first by jumping on him and choking him and ripping his face apart with his claws and then puncturing his stomach with his hands. Rob, how would you describe the creature that we have here? We finally see see the creature. It, you know, it's almost as though um, someone was cut off, you know, basically at their armpits up. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just two arms and a head and sort of a lump of flesh. Um, you know, no hair, giant claws. And, and I thought they, in the murder scenes, the, I thought they did a good job, you know, with like claw marks on the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, he ends up, what, didn't he rip that doctor in half? I think you know, so. Again, showing his yeah. <laughs> superhuman strength. Yes. Yeah, a, a lump of flesh is a great way, but then you see kind of parts of like either like a rib cage or a deformed kind of twisted spine. I'm not sure, but yeah, it was an interesting looking a, a creature. Uh, you know, real sharp teeth, um, kind of eyes. Was there was there a nose? I don't remember there being a nose. It was yeah, not it was, much of one. It yeah. was a creepy looking thing for. Um, it was, and and they do sort of like a combination of of puppeteering and. Um, stop motion. Oh, and, we'll get and to the stop there motion. There were yeah. a, a couple scenes where I couldn't tell if it was someone in a mask yeah, or yeah. if like, cause the eyes were, I thought really well done. Yeah. Yeah. Look, they, they definitely, Hen and Lauder tried, I think a t- couple of different techniques to, to show the creature. Um, yeah. and sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, we'll get there. Uh, but so here we go. We've got now our, our kind of plot set up our rising action is going to be a revenge story though we still don't know exactly why at this point um earlier in the film we learned that the creature can communicate with Dwayne telepathically and so when Dwayne um sets up a date with with Needleman's receptionist Sharon um, and the two kiss and this kiss Rob I mean Dwayne (laughs) just goes for it just mouth open wide um like t- trying to swallow her whole face while kissing. Well, I, I think it, yeah, like sort of spoke to his, um, he's clearly, uh, doesn't know his way around. Socially awkward. Yeah. yeah. Socially awkward. It hasn't been in a relationship like they, they did a game or, or the actor, Kevin, or <laughs> did a good job sort of portraying someone so sort of naive and yeah. unaccustomed to being just around people in general. Um, this sets off what should be an emotional scene, and I'll get to why I say should be in a minute. So the creature, we're getting an idea of what happened here. Dwayne is tracking down doctors. He's got a huge scar on the side. He's got a half-formed human in the basket, right? So obviously yep. something happened at birth, and, and you know the fact that these two have a telepathic you know way to communicate, that these two were, were once one. Um, even though none of the story has been revealed, the backstory has been revealed yet. The creature just absolutely freaks out when Dwayne starts kissing Sharon. Um, he pops up out of his basket screaming in like a really disturbing (laughs) sound. Yeah, that scream was, was unsettling. Yes. Um, and then he starts destroying the hotel room. Uh, eventually he kills one of the tenants and then he escapes through a window. The problem is... Um, Hennenlotter uses a rudimentary form of stop motion to kind of show the creature moving around the hotel room. So yeah. far, we've mostly seen close-ups of the creature or his point of view with his clawed arms reaching out to kill people. So, you know, a budgetary constraint here led to what, in my opinion, was just a super cheesy... I mean, I was I <laughs> laughed out loud when, at this point, has been a really well-shot movie considering the budget and Hennenlotter's mm-hmm experience like you mentioned his first feature film but boy the stop motion just completely took me out of the film what what would you think of the this scene? yeah it it very it becomes very distracting very quickly and and it's like it goes back to what you said before you know up until this point they're doing a really good job of sort of hiding um belial's his name yes. and and then all of a sudden it's like nope we're gonna show everything and yeah, the ball's going to be dropped because we have to resort to, as you said, this rudimentary, you know, stop motion that just, yeah, takes you out of sort of the mystery of it all. And uh, but then they they kind of from that point forward, you know, you see Belial all the time. 
Uh, yeah. But yeah. fortunately, they sort of stayed away from going back to, to, to stop motion. So it's, it's a little, little better <laughs> as it continues uh-huh. on. Yes. Um, all right. So kind of interesting, though. And again, this scene, however, however the stop motion looked, it also, again, makes these two sympathetic, right? We start to see that, okay, um, you know, why Dwayne doesn't know how to kiss a woman. It's because mm-hmm. he's, you know, been saddled with this creature and obviously can't make regular, you know, can't form normal human relationships. So, you know, like every great um, horror film that has a, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that the doctor was the villain because, you know, I don't see Dwayne and, and the creature here as the villains. I see them as sympathetic um, characters and this uh, yeah, scene absolutely. really sets that up I thought so at the midway point in the movie we get the big reveal of what happened to Dwayne and his poor creature that like you mentioned we learn his name Belial I don't it's a weird I didn't look up like the origins of that name I should have did you I, I believe it's a, another name for Satan so I mean okay. you're, you're going full bore in sort of establishing that he is this monster yeah Named by the, um, yeah. the father, obviously, yeah. because so we find out that that they were si- they were Siamese twins, but while Dwayne had a normal body, the creature was just this head and arms um, deformed at that growing out of the side of Dwayne, and um, Dwayne's mother died at birth, uh, and so at age twelve, Dwayne's father, who just you know never wanted this other you know. So obviously he's the one then if that that makes sense that if he named him after Satan um, at age 12 Dwayne's father found doctors Cutter and Lifflander to perform an operation to separate the two and literally tosses Belial out in yeah, the trash. I mean forcibly separates them. Yeah. You know, doesn't give rips them out them of bed. choice. Yeah. He just wants this, you know, as he calls that this monster gone, you know, and is holding a grudge because his wife died in birth. So yeah, it does a really good job in this sort of um, past scene of establishing them as as sympathetic creatures. You know, the only person who had showed them any love was their aunt, um, you know, rejected by their father, mom died in birth. And and then dad says, all right, we're we're cutting you guys in Mm -hmm. half, basically. And we're just going to throw Belial in the garbage. But because the two could communicate telepathically and once separated, um, the creature could still communicate with Dwayne telepathically. So when Dwayne woke up from the surgery, he heard Belial calling out to him and found him. Um, (laughs) Dwayne, it's so funny the way this film skirts between you know, this actual dramatic horror film to a, the exploitation film yeah. <laughs> because the grindhouse film, because Dwayne attached a giant saw spinning saw to a wagon in the basement that then when his dad hears it and goes down in the basement, looking this saw, you know, like a Rube well, Goldberg did machine. Did Dwayne like, do it or did Belial do it? Uh, I, I don't know I assumed, that we know. I assumed Dwayne did just because how does Belial put this thing together? But yeah, who knows? Um, well, well, I mean, we maybe see together. he has super strength. Yes, that's and, true. Yeah. But it's like this like Rube Goldberg style yeah. <laughs> machine that they put together. And it literally cuts his dad in half in a hilarious scene that we see the two legs, you know. I actually had to pause it because I was like, wait a minute, what? what the hell is that thing? You know, yeah. cause it's, it just shows the giant blade starts spinning and I'm like, what, what is that attached to? What is going on? Yeah, it, it was. Yeah. And then, you know, we see just the two halves of his dad flop down. Um, and then, so after that, the aunt cared for both Dwayne and Belial until she died. So, you know, pretty heavy backstory here. That's told with a somber feel. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, and up until that grindhouse scene where the dad is cut in half by the giant saw. Um, (laughs) So, you know, interesting. So Dwayne finally finds Dr. Cutter, a.k.a. fake Sigourney Weaver, and learns that she was actually a veterinarian, which, again, just a twinge of even worse, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah, It just speaks again to the sort of how the father considered him you know, this monster. So just bring in a vet and anybody that will, yeah. you know, get this job done. So when he's finally, Dwayne is finally face to face with Dr. Cutter and she asks what's in the basket. 
Dwayne and Belial finally get their revenge, but with the most ridiculous, over-the-top death that I can remember that ends with Dr. Cutter with about five scalpels in her face. Stuck in her face. <laughs> Rob, considering how sympathetic they've made Dwayne and Belial, and we just had this like whole backstory, sympathetic backstory, uh, this was really out of place. Uh, what do you think here of Dr. It- Cutter's death? That whole scene up up the cheese a lot because too like in the other cases where we see you know Belial take revenge or, or murder someone it's it's just he and you know they're so shocked at what they're dealing with so it's it's fairly easy but she actually puts up a fight mm-hmm. and you know <laughs> knocks Dwayne on his butt and you know is is trying to fight back and with surgical tools before, you know, getting them (laughs) jabbed in her face. It just, yeah. You know, we see his hand shoving her face in this drawer and then (laughs) it just didn't, that scene didn't really work for me. It's like, well, how does she end up with, with five of those in her face like that? Yeah. It's funny. I, I grabbed that as a screenshot and just because (laughs) I had to, and then I was going through my photos and my son was kind of looking over my shoulder, my 12 year old son. And he, like wait stop stop on that photo what is that what in the what in the world is that and i had to try to explain it to him so he he got a kick out of that as well um you know it's interesting too was we got fake sigourney weaver here and if you watch this movie well hopefully you do you'll understand what what i'm talking about i'm wondering if hen and lauder was it you know was this sigourney weaver versus the alien but in his movie and it's sigourney weaver versus this little creature like what (laughs) Maybe. Who knows? It's, uh, it's funny. I didn't even make the connection, but as soon as you said it when we started, I was like, oh, there it is. Right? Like, how did I miss that? Oh, as soon as I saw her um, at the table with on her date, and I was like, I first had to stop, and I'm like, wait, did is that Sigourney Weaver? And then I was like, no, wait, this is a $35,000 budget in 1982. They didn't get Sigourney <laughs> Weaver for this film. Um, uh, they didn't get anybody. They didn't get anybody, <laughs> right. It felt very much like he just was like, Hey, hey, Bill, what are you doing tomorrow? Yes, you come absolutely. <laughs> film this with me? Yeah, which is great, though, because, you know, the way they ham, you know, they, they play it to the hilt a lot of times. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it's, it, yeah. Well, they're like the other residents in the, in the oh, guess, apartment the... complex were, were great. And yeah, particularly Casey, which, you know, I hope we yeah. talk about a little bit. Well, let's talk about Casey. So she's the kind of friendly um lady of the night i guess you'd say Uh, just the the room down in the hotel and then um you know the way we got to the backstory was Dwayne went out to the bar after the failed romantic um date with sharon and he was feeling dejected and he he has what i presume is his first taste of alcohol ever and and casey sees him in there and she's like now what are you doing here honey you know she's this just lovely sweet lady and mm-hmm. so they sit down and and he, they start he she's like let's go in the corner here and start drinking together and so they do and he's you know finally reveals all the backstory because he's drunk and he's letting it all out and instead of you know walking away she's like oh honey you know that's so terrible and she kind of gives him this curious look right and she gets him back to the back to the uh, hotel and gets him into his room but first she, you know she's like we got to get you to your room and he's like you first and so she like opens her door but then gets him put away you know sleeping on the bed and Belial kind of sneaks out of his basket and sneaks down to Casey's room and mm-hmm. um, <laughs> when she, and then we get kind of the uh, she's you know taken off all of her clothes and gets into her night gown and gets into bed and then little hand comes up and grabs her boob yep little groping that that's where the movie to me starts to take a turn you know much further into the exploitation side that i felt um because it it gets worse and i felt that stuff was just unnecessary see i'm the complete opposite because really well and and here's why because um there's a psychological and kind of dramatic uh, subplot playing out here and it all Mm -hmm. happened when um Dwayne kisses Sharon for the first time and Belial freaks out and you know you think that it's because oh Dwayne's you know gonna you know meet this girl and leave me but then also this is the first time that we see Belial with any type of motivation other than revenge killing 
True. And True. he doesn't kill Casey. He has that chance. He's in bed there with her. He could easily, yeah. but instead he grabs her boob. And you, you, for me anyway, you start to see kind of this other side of Belial of, well, I well, want to have a normal life too. I want to have a girl yeah. in my life sort of thing. Well, I, I think there, t- yeah, there's definitely a component of, you know, both of them have, are sort of starved for affection. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, so I didn't think it was so much exploitation because I thought that the, that the story called for it, warranted it. Um, and here's okay. why, because then now if, if this was the end of the film with Dr. Cutter's death, which most films would end here, you got your revenge, yep. you ended, you know, five scalpels to the face, it's over, you're dead. But that's not the, the climax of the film, Rob. We get a subversive climax, uh, figuratively and possibly literally. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure how all this works. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll break down the anatomy here. But when Dwayne and Belial return to their hotel room, the love interest, um, Sharon, shows up at the hotel upset about Needleman's death. And the two start sucking face on the bed. And... Um, so now we've got Dwayne slowly puts one hand on her boob and then his other hand on her other boob. And then Rob, I swear, I thought that then Belial's <laughs> deformed hand was going to slowly enter the picture and put his hand on Sharon's boob as well. Um, but instead, he, because of the telepathic connection, he instinctively knows what's happening. He shoots out of the basket screaming again, um, just like before. So Dwayne forces Sharon to leave the hotel but once Dwayne falls asleep, we see Belial at the window of the hotel room. And then Dwayne starts dreaming and he's imagining th- this is such a creative sequence. So Dwayne yeah, starts yeah. dreaming and he's imagining himself running down the street naked to Sharon's house. Um, he enters her bedroom. He puts his hand on her boob and I think begins having sex with her um Mm -hmm. and then now remember that belial can telepathically communicate with Dwayne. so what Dwayne is dreaming is what's happening in real life so when Dwayne wakes up he rushes over to sharon's house to find her dead and his twin brother slash creature trying to have sex with her um rob this is disturbing but then yes. also incredibly sad as mm-hmm. all Belial wants to be is normal, like his brother. Yeah. Oh, what'd you think of this, of this sequence? I, in most ways it was very effective. I just didn't like how far they took it, you know, uh, just defiling her corpse. Yeah. So he's, <laughs> it, he's, it, it was, yeah. yeah, it was very dark. It's like blood coming down from her groin yeah. area as he's kind of just like humping her. But mm-hmm. you know, he, obviously we, we've seen him he's just a blob but he doesn't have a any well type that, of anatomy that isn't to... necessarily true but you have to go to the sequel for that okay all right <laughs> so i haven't gotten there so okay so this makes that earlier scene with casey i think all the more important that it shows his desires to mm-hmm. you know to have be the ability to do this and he doesn't so i think that's why i say that that scene ended up not being exploitation because it sets this scene up so yes anyway. yeah so i mean i, I get that perspective yeah. i just yeah like i said it, it got got a little darker than i was yeah it did you know it from was, the movie that scene sticks with you for sure um so Dwayne runs back to the hotel he's slamming the basket around along the way you know he's swearing she was good this will never happen again so Belial jumps out of the basket when they get back to the hotel and tosses Dwayne out of the window and the two fall to their presumed deaths. Um, Rob, as happy as the ending was of the return of Swamp Thing was in our last episode, this thing was equally as sad, I thought. Um, what did you think of the kind of Shakespearean tragedy ending here with one brother killing another brother? Yeah, it's, you know, heartbreaking you know to have that sort of turn of events where you know they're so bonded but the desire to lead normal lives you know you know puts this sort of wedge between them that goes so far as to you know result in both of their deaths mm-hmm. it uh you know and and you're left sort of wondering when they first go out the window and you know they're hanging from the neon sign that we're shown over and over again throughout the film is he you know sort of regretting 
and and trying to save Dwayne, or is it just right. flat out here I am, you know, killing him, and and then I just happen to slip as well. Yeah, because he was choking him while yeah. hanging. So, but then you don't know. Yeah, that's kind of a drawn out sequence there as he's hanging from. The, uh, yeah, super tragic ending after the disturbing kind of double climax, I guess you'd call it. One, mm-hmm. they, you know, they accomplished their goal, but then they, so yeah, really just surprisingly deep here for this yeah. for this little $35,000 grindhouse kind of feature. Um, all right, so, you know, you hear the term cult classic thrown about these days for just about any low-budget film made in the 80s. Let's head to Rotten Tomatoes, Rob, to see if Basket Case stands up to its moniker of cult classic, shall we? Sure. All right, so no surprise for this one, Rob. We've got a tomato meter and an audience score. 26 critics reviews for the tomato meter score. As always, we'll ask you, how do you think it did from 1 to 100 on the tomato meter score? This one I think is really tough because I know uh, that initially it was not viewed kindly at all and it was much more uh retroactively or in hindsight that it started to to gain a following and be appreciated for the movie that it is so i you know i don't know where that leaves a tomato score um because I would assume it would include some pretty old reviews in there. So I'll probably, I got to go pretty low and give it like a 40%. So I think that this might be one of our highest rated films, Rob, coming in with a 77% fresh tomato meter score. And I think it's that depth of the film and it's, you know, however it was recognized for its, um, artistic value given you know the budget and the time it was made i guess but uh, yeah, yeah. there's uh, the critics love it so 77 percent, i think by far our, our yeah by by dramatically far our highest now um do you think audiences agree more than ten thousand audience scores for basket case rob one to 100 where do you think audiences ranked basket case so you, the tomato score was 77 mm-hmm. you said mm-hmm. i i i'm would probably go higher and put it at 80%. So a bit of a flip here, a surprising 54% for the audience score. Yeah. I mean, typically for our up all night movies, it's the other way around, right? With Mm -hmm. audiences liking it more than the critics. But in this case, it is completely the the opposite. Um, All right. So let's hear from the audience members. Tom G was an audience member that did like it. He gave it four out of five stars writing, this is not only a very good, sometimes delightfully repulsive, weird horror film, but also an interesting film in its psychological and ethical aspects. Sensitive viewers may be moved by the two main protagonists, one for his tragic and monstrous situation, the other for his compassion that conflicts with the limits of his own desires, and by their relationship evolving intention as the film progresses. Tom G, perhaps one of the most well-composed reviews that we've read on Still Up All Night. So kudos to you (laughs) and your analysis of Basket Case. Nice job. Round of applause for that. Yes. Uh, But Jimmy W is a bit of a nihilist here, giving it just half a star. Oh, get out of town. Yeah, wait till you hear this. Pretending to like and, quote, understand this movie doesn't make you a film buff. It actually makes you desperate to fit into a niche group of idiots who ironically celebrate poor quality. Jimmy goes on to say some disparaging (laughs) things about your kids if you like this movie that I'm not going to repeat on our podcast. I assume Jimmy doesn't listen to this podcast if he's so sensitive about people that like bad movies. So shame on you, Jimmy W. We're just having some fun here, and and you're ruining it. So, (laughs) Party pooper, yeah. Yeah. And then finally, an unnamed reviewer will pick us back up from Jimmy W.'s ignorance. He writes... Or she writes, um, by far one of the raddest exploitation films of the early 80s, Dwayne Bradley and his deformed basket-bound brother Belial make a combo of effing comedic gold filled with a lot of trash that you would expect from any exploitation film, including a face full of scalpels. Rad. (laughs) So I wish you had named your review there, unnamed reviewer, because that's fantastic as well. That is. Yeah. But I have to give a, a quick shout out to Dwayne's mullet perm oh, in this yeah. film too. That is, it's Beautiful. I think, 
even bigger than his head. <laughs> it it is it is nice. It is um, early '80s. Um, a lot of uh, product and perm stuff happening there to, to make that. Yeah, good good stuff for Dwayne. Um, so the mixed bag of comments here, Rob, on um, Basket Case on Rotten Tomatoes. It's an experience in itself, and I recommend you go check them all out. It's really funny. So. Now that we've done this, I absolutely will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, Rob, so you picked this movie. So tell us, is Basket Case worth staying up all night for? Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, it, it, just for the, the movie in and of itself, which, you know, as, as we've sort of highlighted here, you know, is deeper than you would expect and, and has some definitely poignant moments and it manages to evoke emotion. Uh but to also see the start of Henry Lauder's career and, and, uh, I don't, you know, I don't know if you've seen, um, brain damage or was my introduction to him that made me, you know, it's a, it's a weird movie too, where I said, I got to see some other stuff by this guy. Um, and you know, well worth it. Now I have to see basket case three as well. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, for as silly as this concept might seem, um, I think it's incredible directorial debut by Frank Henenlotter, considering the scope of this movie, the surprising depth and places that it does go and then could go even further if he wanted to. I mean, he kind of combines drama with Grindhouse, which is just a yeah. really interesting mix. Um, you know, as, as one of the Rotten Tomatoes reviewers uh, alluded to with discussing the ethical and moral dilemmas presented in the film, the fact that he did it on a shoestring budget with, you know, mostly untrained actors, the way it was shot, the, the music and effects were really fantastic. I mean, we talked a little bit about the effects. We didn't even talk about the music. They, they, every kind of song, the soundtrack, uh, it, it was it just fit perfectly for mm-hmm. the mood of the of the scene. Um, the slow reveal of the creature in the in the beginning. I mean, the, the film is named Basket Case, but we don't see what's in the basket for 30 minutes. Um, I do think it missed the mark by walking that tightrope of being serious in some parts and you know goofy in others. But overall, mm-hmm. super fun watch, but with some depth. I can't wait to watch the next two movies, knowing that somehow Dwayne returns. That um, <laughs> they both return, obviously. You know, maybe they were triplets, and maybe we'll find out that there's a third Bradley brother. Who knows? Um, but definitely <laughs> worth staying up all night for, and uh, and home run on the selection for our I, I Halloween think too episode. That Rob. I, I read that if in the credits that so like essentially so few people put this movie together with Hen and yes. Lauder that they just started making names up to sort of yeah. populate. Yes. The I read that too. And then I, I was paying close attention to the credits. I, I saw that there was a pilot credited and there was a psychologist credited. So it's like, I wondered too, if he was having fun just making up titles as well, but yeah, yeah who knows? Um, all right, that's going to do it for this Halloween episode and Basket Case. Uh, remember that the entire Basket Case trilogy is available right now on Tubi. So I'm heading there soon to, to check out both. Um, can't wait. Thanks for staying up all night with us. We'll see you next episode. Until then, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter slash X. Can't wait till I don't have to do say that anymore. Uh, at Still Up Podcast, <laughs> and uh, reminding you that if you see a man walking down the street carrying a large wicker basket, just turn the other way and run. <laughs> and happy Halloween. <laughs>